So when I come and have the, uh, could say, uh, privilege, we could say uh, duty, we could say opportunity to speak and offer some reflections on the practice and the teaching that we have been engaged in together. I come to the front of the hall here and it's often that I feel moved to take a moment to just express my appreciation and respect for the teachings and the tradition and the, the Buddha, this remarkable human being who through his own encounter and exploration of, of his life, came to share with us and in a certain personal sense with me, through many others of course, but things that have been really, really precious for me to understand about and to learn about. And so there's, a, for me, just this kind of marking of a, a respect for this wisdom that has been born from human experience, born from human hearts and mind, and shared and transmitted and passed through and from one living generation to the next. And likewise, when we sit here together, and at the end of the sitting, after ringing the bell, I'm often moved to just bring my hands together. And for some of you, you may wonder what that's all about. It's like, is this some strange sort of ritual thing that means you've joined the Buddhist club or what's going on here? And for me, it's, it's just a simple traditional gesture that comes from Asia that's expressing respect and appreciation. And so I'm, I'm just bringing my hands together in this way, palms together. Something about bringing together something. That uh, is by the heart, it seems. And it's natural expression. It just acknowledges for me the, and really honours also, the, the challenge of what it is that we've undertaken here. That uh, in a simple way I feel moved on a regular basis just to express my respect and appreciation for what each and every one of us here is engaged in. Because it's not easy, is it? You come along to a retreat with some idea that, you know, gosh, if you read the description, you know, sort of, what's it? Kindness and wisdom and probably peace and happiness. and It all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We don't list sort of aching knees, boring breath, um, you know, interminable days. Um, and all of that. And so there's something rather wonderful and inspiring just in seeing you coming back in here. It's not like we head out there with a stick and round you all up and say, yeah, get back in there. You just come back. It's amazing. And, you know, <laughs> you've probably had the same thought yourself, like, what am I doing coming back here? And yet something brings us back. Something moves us to come here and engage with the situation even though the tools we're being offered to deal with it don't seem to necessarily resolve it in the way we might wish or imagine that they should. For instance, you know, shouldn't being engaged in this meditation of awareness, of breathing, shouldn't that mean my mind becomes calm and quiet and I you know, kind of experience thoughts of uh, bliss and kindness towards all beings sort of, and not much else? 
And likewise, in the practice of the metta, of the loving-kindness meditation we've engaged in, does that, doesn't that mean I should now be filled with some radiant quality of suffusive sort of friendliness towards everything? And of course, we've realized that no, it doesn't mean that. We've seen that in many different ways, and this is perhaps one of the most uh, frequent topics of conversation in a retreat, uh, at least in the small groups and in the evening talks, since there aren't so many other conversations. Um, So what is it that's happening to us here? There's lots of ways we could describe or understand it. One way we could describe and understand it is that we're engaged in a process of learning what it means to embrace our aliveness. To really see clearly and open to and into what it means to be alive, what it means to be what we are. And this human experience is one that is in some ways crystallized around the realities of our human sensitivity and our human responsivity. Our capacity to respond to things. The fact that we are touched, that we're impacted, that we're affected by experience in so many different ways as we are. And that we're not just sitting here sort of being affected. We have responses to that. We have many responses, it seems. And we're incredibly sensitive human beings. We are beings, these human version of beings, they're incredibly sensitive, all of us, in so many different ways. We're impacted, we're impinged upon, we're affected by things. And uh, one of the kind of probably clearest or strongest tendencies or, or impulses we notice when we come on retreat and we can't not notice. That's part of how the retreat is constructed and intended. Is So we can't help but notice that we're trying really hard to get comfortable. To find a condition or a place where things feel okay. And we don't experience a sense of being impacted or impinged upon or affected by experiences around us, people and things and equally by experiences within us. We're really working hard, or hoping, it seems, at least some of the time, maybe a lot of the time, that we might not be impacted by these things in ways that we find difficult, challenging, scary, or unwished for. And yet, in this movement, in this urge, in this you know, really understandable wish, it seems, that we have and that we share to be comfortable what we start to get perhaps a little inkling of as we sit and walk and stand and we're here with ourselves and it's not as if anyone's necessarily, you know, doing something, as one of my teachers used to say and or still says in fact, you know, nobody's beating us with sticks, you know, while we sit here. And sometimes we might feel like we're being quite hard on ourselves. but But nonetheless... We don't find it easy to get comfortable, do we? In fact, we might even start to wonder if it's not just difficult, but 
even possible. And it's certainly hard work in the endeavour. I mean, have you noticed how tiring it is to do what we've been doing here? Did anyone arrive at 9.30 last night and think, wow, I'm done? 9.30? Did you hear the number? 9.30? It wasn't that late, was it? And it's like, oh, if we made it to 9.30, we'd probably go, well done. And fair enough, well done. Because it is hard work and challenging what's going on here. And yet so much of that is to do with how we respond to what's happening. And the reality of our sensitivity is something that it's really important to reflect upon. To not kid ourselves about, not imagine is or should be other than as it is. Because the sensitivity of this experience of this human organism is at very much at the centre of what drives a lot of activity for us. And, you know, our body, it's so sensitive, so easy to be hurt or injured or just impacted with something uncomfortable. And I, I often think about and reflect on the the range of temperature in which we're comfortable as human beings. You know, if we think about it, it's probably from about um, maybe 18 to 24, maybe 26 degrees centigrade. I can't quite think in Fahrenheit anymore, so I, I don't know if I can translate for anyone who doesn't think in centigrade, but um, or Celsius. But, you know, much below 18, and it's kind of a bit cool. And much over 24 or maybe 26, it starts to feel hot. So, you know, actually we try and keep the temperature in the building at about 19 or 20 because we want to be comfortable. But as far as temperature, you might wonder, what do what we got? You know, this is not news to any of you, I'm sure. But that's our relatively limited comfort zone. When you think about the fact that the coldest temperatures that they recognise or record are about minus 273 centigrade or zero Kelvin, and the hottest temperatures are tens of thousands of degrees centigrade in the sort of exploding nuclear furnace of nuclear fusion in the core of a sun or a star. And you realise that the range from minus 273 to several tens of thousands is a very big range of which there's this tiny little range in the middle that we're comfortable at. And that's where we're comfortable, at the co- on the outside. The core of our body needs to stay pretty close to 37 degrees. If we get more than two or three degrees either side of that, we feel really bad. And so it's actually remarkably fortunate that we're even relatively comfortable just at that level, even some of the time, given the possibilities. And that's just one dimension of comfort, temperature. It's, of course, an important one for us. And this isn't meant to be a kind of a lecture on biology but under, sort of if we look at that we realize oh actually how much time and trouble do we spend keeping ourselves at that between those two temperature ranges you know how much clothing how much fuel how much what we're doing to this planet is about keeping us in that comfortable range heating it up when it's cold cooling it down when it's hot it's amazing how much time and energy goes into that And of course, it's not just our bodies that are really sensitive. Our, we could say, hearts, minds, our psyche, equally sensitive. Sometimes a few words can impact us incredibly. 
Like if we were to walk outside and get a note saying from one of the teachers, meet me in my office. <laughs> what have I done? Oh no. We don't even need a, a, a note. It might just be group meeting. Group meeting. You know, it's really so not unusual for us to find that really difficult. Many people anticipating the group meeting find, oh, I don't know how that's going to go. It's kind of a relief not to have to talk to people. And suddenly I have to talk to them again. Oh my gosh. You know, scary. I mean, they look pretty scary if you look around. <laughs> Fortunately, it's generally pretty kind, friendly people who come to retreats like this, but they still look scary sometimes. And just a few words can impact us so much. Or just the anticipation of some words, or having to say some words. There's a, there's a story I like to tell. Um, speaks to this very well. Of a of a samurai warrior in uh, feudal Japan in the Middle Ages, walking down a, a road. And he he's a, has a sense of a sort of a, a spiritual dimension to his, uh, to his life, and a very central dimension. And he's, he's contemplating and thinking deeply about his, his spiritual life as a, as, a, as a warrior. And he comes across an old monk sitting cross-legged on the side of the road. And he sees the old monk, he says, Ah, you are a holy man. Can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And the old monk looks up at him, he says, Samurai, your robes are dusty and unwashed. I see you are not so clean. Your sword is rusty. And Samurai, you smell bad. You are a disgrace to your noble order. Why should I speak to you? And the proud Samurai, hearing this little pipsqueak of a monk insulting, pulls out a sword. He's just about to take the monk's head off with one clean blow. And the monk looks up at him and says, That's hell. (laughs) And in the moment, this, this noble Samurai... He suddenly realises, oh my gosh, here was I about to kill this little fella for a few words, to completely go against my my code as a spiritual warrior, to not attack a defenceless person and certainly not a monk. And I almost did that. And he's suddenly so full of gratitude and appreciation for this little monk who's taught him this amazing lesson. He's filled with, 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 with love. And gratitude, he's beaming down at the little monk. The monk looks up and says, that's hell. Sorry, that's heaven. Just a few words. And we've known that, haven't we? Someone says something and we can feel touched with so much love. And equally we can feel hurt with so much poignancy. Just a few words. We are so sensitive. It seems. And this is not a mistake. This is not a mistake that this is so. It's one of the reasons we ask people to refrain from engaging in speaking with each other on a retreat so we can allow ourselves to feel safe because we are sensitive and impacted and to not write notes to each other and to not engage in using phones and things like that. And even if we might think, I'm not being affected by using this phone, the person beside us or near to us or seeing us might be being affected 
So it's really important in respecting our human sensitivity to, to not engage in those things. It's really part of what creates a sense of safety here. And yet it's easy to have the sense that uh, it's almost like we don't want to be impacted. Even though the very nature of our experience is constantly being affected, we don't want to be impacted. And this sensitivity and the element of vulnerability that goes with it, it's like often it's being informed by the experience of our lives and of our past and maybe our early lives where we encountered things that were more than we could handle. And when we were children, when we were infants, the the capacity that we have as human beings is not yet fully developed or matured. And far from it at times when we're very little. So that we are easily overwhelmed or easily impacted in a way that we can't handle. We can't. It's true. We can't handle it. And the experience of that overwhelm, of the intensity of impact that we can't handle, we don't know how to handle or how to ground, at least unless we have a lot of support is that we can have a sense as if it kind of annihilates us, as if we're kind of wiped out by it. That's actually, the, in a way, the psychological experience <coughs> when we're small, and sometimes we're not so small, of feeling overwhelmed by something really difficult. It's like, and it, it, it's, it's really quite difficult. It's really not at all easy. And so what we find is that we become afraid of experience because we've known it in the past to have the capacity to overwhelm us. And we assume that that continues to be the case because we haven't necessarily understood or recognized that our capacity as human beings has changed profoundly since that time when we maybe first experienced what we could call that overwhelm. And so we can have this sense of of fear, of anxiety, of, of hesitation about life and about experience, of wanting to avoid that which may be threatening to us, to avoid that which may overwhelm us, or potentially, it seems, we imagine or believe at some level, not necessarily consciously, but we imagine or believe at some level that we would be annihilated by this. Like it would be just the end. We don't usually think that far into it. It's more like, I just don't want to go there. I'm not even going to even think about why it is that I want to go there. I just know I do not want to go to that place. And there's something appropriate and right about being respectful and restrained in a certain way in how we approach and handle the territory of our sensitive and difficult experience. But... It's also really important to reflect on and to consider for ourselves and perhaps on a regular basis in one's life how much how much of our life do we spend trying to avoid that which we're afraid of how much of our life well, how much since we last asked ourselves that question have we spent in that way? And probably most of us, and certainly if I ask myself, I say, yeah, certainly a good chunk of time has been spent in that way. A good chunk of energy gets spent in that way. 
Just when I think about what shall I put in the bag to come to Guy House, I'm sitting there thinking, do I need one jumper, two jumpers? Shall I take a coat as well? How cold will it be? It was really cold last week. And there's this slight concern about being cold. And then, of course, as the bag starts to get bigger and bigger, I start to think, but if people see me with a great big bag, what are they going to think? The cat, you know, this guy's supposed to be a renunciate, isn't he? And that's just another kind of fear. And, and, and there you are, stuck between the two of them. Either I'm going to get cold or I'm going to look, not look good. You know? And it's like, oh my gosh. Small things, maybe, in one sense, but not always small things. And the way they impact us, the way we feel them. And so, you know, we can notice our minds moving very quickly on this track. An experience arises, it's a sensation in my knee, and the thought goes very quickly from pain, or first of all, we don't even, we just sense it's unpleasant, we think it's pain, and then this image arises of the sort of, you know, of where it's going to go. And the, the, you know, the ambulance pulling up at Guy House and being whisked off to the hospital and, you know, life in a wheelchair or with a, you know. And, and, and just in a moment, our mind has gone to that, you know, worst case fear scenario. Now, of course, sometimes, as we've said, one needs to be respectful and careful with the knee or with our body to not put it under undue pressure in the context of practice. But that movement of fear so quickly grabs us and takes us and drives us. And it's actually deeply painful to live in the grip of this. And not only that, but it's, it's actually more painful often than the experience that stimulates it. And it's more difficult than what would happen if what we're most afraid of actually happened. Because the nature of fear is that we can't really deal with it. Because it's not happening. The thing we're afraid of isn't happening. If it happens, we face it. We're either annihilated, it's all over, or we're not, in which case we get on with whatever's possible. not saying that's easy. But the fear doesn't quite recognise that. And it's so painful. It's so painful. Mark Twain apparently once said, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. <laughs> but it's the, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. And that is, oh, oh. So part of what we get to do here is see that process happen. Maybe see how quickly we go into what's going to happen if the sitting keeps going too long. On my first retreat, I remember waiting until the last possible moment before I went in the hall, just so I could make the sitting just that little bit shorter, so I could possibly cope to the end of the 45 minutes, because I was that scared that what would happen. They didn't, unfortunately, tell me that I could change my posture if I needed to. I think that was an error on their part, Um, and uh, hopefully we've let you know that you can if you need to, and that's clear. But what we see if we look is that fear arises actually right here where we are. But it arises in relationship to something that's going on right here that leads us to form a view or a conclusion about the future. 
And what happens is that we move with our, in our mind ever so quickly sometimes into the future, into the imagined scenario and attempt to grapple with it in order to somehow resolve it when it's not actually there. It hasn't happened, so we can't resolve it. Because whatever we think about as a resolution, we can think about a way that that won't work. Because we're not actually there. It's nothing we can actually deal with. But what we can do is recognize, oh, the fear is happening here. Fear is always happening in the present moment. And if we can come back into the present moment and feel it in the body and acknowledge, oh, this is what's here, it has so much less power. It's still, indeed, an uncomfortable experience. But it doesn't have the power to constrict our heart and to take us away from where we are. And we've spoken some about that, the importance and the benefit of being able to soften into and being able to open around our experience. So giving it space, allowing where we might feel the contraction of belly or the tightening of the shoulders or whatever might come with fear. We can feel also maybe some sense of space around that or within it. Or just give it some room. And bringing some sense of kindliness to it. Again, as we've spoken about, seeing that when there's fear, what fear mostly needs is some kindness. If a small child runs up to us saying, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, we don't, it's not that useful to say, don't be afraid, there's nothing to be afraid of. Because that's kind of in the head. What we need to respond is, oh, you're afraid, oh, okay, look, it's okay over here. It's all right, well, tell me about it. They need to be listened to. Sometimes we too, we need to listen. But that doesn't mean we need to believe that there is a monster under the bed. Because often there isn't. But the fear needs to be acknowledged. And as we can start to acknowledge that, start to see it, there's a kind of a, a settling more fully into where we are. What's also really helpful when there's fear, and we can experience that in a number of forms. There might be more resistance, the sense of don't really want to go there. Um, which actually if we look at it we'll often find there's some fear within resistance to also we can just bring a more active sense of, of kindness of friendliness to ourselves. and in fact the Buddha first taught the loving kindness practice of wishing well for oneself and wishing well for others he taught that in response to some monks and nuns who were practicing in the forest at night and got really scared in case there were creatures there that might you know, be threatening to them. And they said, we can't practice meditation, we're too scared. So he said, okay, practice this kind of meditation. Because it's something about the heart. When we're afraid, we're afraid because we care about our well-being. We care for our own safety. And so aligning more directly with the caring that underpins the fear. By harnessing that caring directly, we can actually hold the fear. And sometimes this is really helpful very useful in a way we can bring loving kindness to meet the places where we're afraid to hold our heart tenderly softly kindly because what we notice if we don't really attend to this pattern this movement this urge to get away from and to avoid that which we fear. What we notice is that our world gets smaller. 
our world gets smaller. If we withdraw from something that scares us, whether it be something out in the world, I won't go into that part, then the world is smaller because that part suddenly, you know, those old maps and medieval days, there be dragons, you know. That's the bit we don't go because it's often the unknown territory. We don't go there. In a meditation, sometimes we find ourselves encountering some of the unknown, the unfamiliar territory. It can be a little scary. But if we're unwilling to enter into those places, the world gets smaller. We pull away from that which we fear. But the tendency towards fear comes with us. It's not in the thing. It's in the being. It's in the heart. And so we pull away from that which scares us, and then we find something else a little closer which scares us. If we pull away from that, we find something else even closer. Do you recognize that process? See how that works? Perhaps in some way? And so if we're interested in living with some sense of spaciousness and ease, we have to really look at this pattern, at this tendency. And it's not to judge it, but just to see what other possibilities might I have for working with this territory. Sometimes we can just take a small risk to see what happens if I just stay with this a little longer. We can still change or move away if we have to, but what happens if I just stay here a little longer, if I let myself feel a little more of what's going on here? And just see. And sometimes you might have a sense, that's enough, that's okay. We can still back off. But we're just going a little more slow, slowing the process down. So it's not like we hit something that's difficult and then we're immediately backing off. Because the reality is we can't avoid being impacted. There isn't some place we can go or some condition we can find or some sort of meditative place we can escape to in which we won't be touched or affected in some way or form. Although there are remarkably, we could say, refined and subtle realms we can explore in the context of meditation, within that, the subtle, refined realms, we have subtle and refined impact. And it's actually just as impactful in the end. We can't separate ourselves from this life that touches us. And actually, in the end, I don't think that's what we really want either. I don't think that's actually what our hearts are looking for here. Because being touched by life is actually important to us. It's essential, actually, for our well-being. And what happens is we only want to be touched by this kind of, the sweet, the lovely, the beautiful, the delicious, and the pleasurable. We don't want the other kind of touch and yet the very sensitivity that allows us to be touched by that which is difficult is the same sensitivity that allows us to be touched by that which is beautiful or uplifting. And so with that which isn't easy for us to meet we're asked to learn what it means to open to this. If we can find 
a place of okayness with what's going on for us, what's going on inside us. And it may take a little time for us. It may take quite some time for us. But if we can, and we can, we can do this, the world begins to expand. Suddenly those territories that, I don't want to go there, start to become, okay, I can actually include this. I can be here with this. And I think uh, sometime, you know, one or two of I think people have referred to this in the group, noticing the sense of how so many of our escape routes are taken away here. And we feel that, oh, there's something here. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And yet here it is. Here we are. This isn't an accident. The tendency to close down the tendency to react against the unpleasant by contracting. We've talked about it some, I think, that the tightening of the body. It's kind of like we're trying to defend ourselves against the condition of our experience by tightening. But what actually happens is in the tightening, and we kind of feel defended or protected in a certain way, we can notice the hardening or the solidification of the, of the physical tissues and equally of the mind and the heart. But in that what actually happens is we become trapped within the experience. We're not protected from it, we're trapped within it. The hardening, contracting, tightening actually encloses the painful and the difficult. It doesn't protect us from it. And so we have to, I think, reflect a little bit on how are we looking at it? What are we concluding about this human experience because many of the views we come to are not formed always consciously or intentionally and certainly not always reflected upon and considered carefully there's a whole <laughs> level of suffering that goes on if we conclude and believe that this <coughs> condition and these <coughs> impact is somehow my fault it's happening this way because I've done it wrong because I failed or because I wasn't good enough and that if I'd just done it right if I'd just figured it out and got it all the way it should have been none of that which is difficult would have happened does anyone recognize that thought that perception you know it's kind of hopeful isn't it it's like if I could have got it right then it, so there's sort of it gives us some strange tragic hope and yet at the same time it somehow makes us responsible for the condition In the groups, one of the things that happens is we hear each other speaking and we sometimes are surprised and sometimes touched to hear how much of what other people's experience is similar to our own, reflects our own or evokes our own. We see that, oh, it's not just me that this is going on for. Other people are having this experience too. Although a lot of time and in social circles and contexts, we don't own it or we don't talk about it. We might moan about the weather or the, you know, the government or whatever, but we don't necessarily say what it's like to be us at the heart of it. And yet when we hear it shared, we start to realize, oh, this isn't just me. This isn't something that's only me and everyone else has got it figured out and they're doing great. No. Actually, this is a shared experience. This experience of challenge, of difficulty at times of struggle is something that connects us because it's something common to us all. It's part of what it means to be a human being. 
And the Buddha spoke about this again and again. I don't know how it was for you the first time you encountered this kind of teaching. Um, Maybe it's happening right at the moment, so you're only finding out, I'm not sure. But certainly when I first heard what the Buddha had to say about this, it was kind of like a real relief. Because what he said was, it doesn't sound like good news. He said, you know, in life there is suffering. It happens. And it doesn't sound like good news, does it? (coughs) But there's something about here. Oh yeah, that is what happens, isn't it? I recognize that. It's not the only thing that happens, but it's one of the things that happens for sure. There's that which is difficult or hard to bear. And the Buddha went on to say, he said, you know, We experience, all of us, birth, ageing, sickness and death. That's a kind of classic translation of that phrase. I I read another one recently that was more like birth and then ageing and decay and death. And I thought, hmm, that kind of, as the years slowly roll on, you get that one a bit more, don't you? Sickness is something we have even when we're young. But ageing sickness, sickness that's kind of like decay, that's the kind of sickness that doesn't get better. That's the kind of thing when it stops working, it's not going to start working again. It's never quite going to do it. I'm sitting here with this pair of glasses um, thinking, I wrote these notes out even larger than the last lot of notes and I still can't quite read them properly. So I probably should put these on, but when I do I won't be able to see you anymore. And at the moment I really like to be able to see you, so I'm kind of got these vague sort of scribbles in front of me that sort of don't make much sense, but occasionally one of the words seems clear enough. Um, and this isn't going to come back. It's not going to be better than, or different than that for me. In fact, it, I'm a little concerned as continuing to go in this direction. As I said, these I wrote out, these notes I wrote this size just recently, and it's like, hmm, <laughs> gosh. Of course, I probably had the glasses on when I wrote them. That might have been a mistake. (laughs) So, birth, ageing, sickness, death, yes, we all are subject to this. We know this, don't we? And not just that, but the Buddha spoke of what we experience in our hearts. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. Doesn't sound good, does it? Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. Ouch! Really? Ouch! And yet this is common human experience. He talked about what it's like for our minds. He said, being associated with what we don't like, being separated from what we do like, and not getting what I want. How is that for you when you don't get what you want? It's really annoying for me when I don't get what I want. If I look at it, if I just am honest with what happens, it's like, I really want it to be the way I want it. Anyone else? No? Just me? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, one might have some understanding that I'm not going to always get it the way I want, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily that much easier. And we, if we reflect on this, it's like, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being. It's also, there's many sweet and lovely things that we can be touched by in our lives. But reflecting on this, it's so easy to think, hmm, probably if I did it the way those people on the television commercials did it, or those people in the soap operas did it, then it would all just have been great. And none of that would have happened. It's such a common fantasy. And our society thrives on maintaining it, despite the fact that it's not true. 
And I'll tell you, and I can say to you, and I'm quite confident that this will make sense, I hope it will for you, why it absolutely is not true. There is no way we could live our life without being impacted in these territories. Obviously, we know birth will end in death. That one, we're not going to argue with. But surely we could have not had to experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. And yet, if you live in your life and in your life you love something or you love someone, at some point you'll be parted from this person or this thing that you love. It must be so. Because you or they or it will not last forever. And at that point or sometime before, we will be separated from what we love. It will happen. And if that happens, and when that happens, it will hurt, it will be painful, it will be sad, it will be grievous. We will feel sorrow at the loss and the separation from that which we love and care for. A student who I've been talking with regularly over the last few years just recently told me in our last conversation, he said, just got a diagnosis. Don't know exactly. Well, she isn't quite, it's not quite confirmed yet, but it's looking like really serious. And then suddenly, here he is, the partner with a child, looking at his life, thinking, wow, this may end quite soon. So we will be separated from that which we love, and that will hurt. And you know, if we don't love anything or anyone in this life, that will hurt. That will be grievous. That will be painful. I can't see a third option. And you're welcome to let me know if you figured one out. If we love, we will feel loss. If we don't love, we will feel loss. Hmm? So that suggests to me that the experience of that which is difficult in our hearts is going to be part of all of our lives. Not all the time, but all of us will have this in our lives. And that it may be really important to consider the possibility, or maybe even more than that, to consider the possibility of forgiving ourselves for the fact that life is like this. Because it is not our fault. It's not because of something we did or didn't do or got wrong or weren't quite good enough at doing And although there, of course, may be many things that have happened in our lives that we would wish not to have happened, that may have been born out of our own action or the action of another, in the end, the fact that in life there is this that is difficult is not because this did or did not happen. But, of course, that that happened has given its shape and its flavour to the difficulty, of course. So it's not that it's irrelevant. Sometimes understanding what has impacted us is really important and being able to work with it. But to forgive oneself for the condition of one's life. So important. To relinquish the fantasy that it's like this because I got it wrong or did it wrong. Unless we just accept that everybody got it wrong and did it wrong. In which case, how can we really say that was wrong? That's just how it is. That's how it goes. 
but only by maintaining the fantasy that everybody else didn't have this go on. Do we imagine that it's something about me? No, it's not. It's universal. It's human. And we're all part of that. And so... Part of forgiving ourselves here is understanding that learning involves making mistakes. This is how we learn. If we knew everything already, we wouldn't need to make any mistakes. But we don't. Learning to walk involves getting skinned knees. Learning a new skill involves difficulties and errors. And if we give it, and we've used that phrase, you know, to play a little bit with our process, to allow ourselves room to make mistakes. And see and learn. Because that's how we learn. The difficult things of our lives are often where the learning takes place. There's a, a lovely story. It's another Zen master story um, that I, I like to tell. Of a, uh, a student who, was a modern day story, a student had the opportunity to go and visit the, 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 the grand and senior master lineage holder of, of the tradition in which the student had been practicing for many years and so he, he went to the uh, he went to the uh, the monastery and, and had this short interview and he knew he'd have just a chance to ask one or two questions so he went up to the Zen master and bowed in front of her and uh, she was sitting there very stern mm, looking at him he bowed down and said master master can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate and the master she looked at him she said mm. Good judgment. He says, oh, thank you. Yes, I understand, of course. Good judgment. He says, how do I cultivate good judgment? She looks at him, hmm. Experience. Experience. Oh, yes, of course, experience. How do I get experience? Bad judgment. (laughs) We can't lose. It's going to happen. What makes the difference is seeing it in that light. Oh, yeah, where I'm still learning, where I'm struggling, where I'm not quite sure how to handle this, that's the place where if I can take an interest in it, if I can open to it, if I can not see this as some kind of failure, it is actually opportunity. Oh, I need to learn something here. Sometimes it takes us a while, but we can. Our life keeps bringing us back to those places. It's really annoying, I tell you. But our life keeps bringing us back to those places precisely because that's where we need to see something. And it will keep doing it until we see it. And that's actually something profoundly compassionate about the way life works, even though it might seem equally irritating. That we keep coming back into contact with that, which is not easy for us. And yet... It is profoundly compassionate. And so learning what it means to bring a kind attention to our experience, as we've spoken about in different ways. Allowing ourselves to open to what is here. To not blame ourselves, to not judge ourselves. To be very aware of that fear-driven urge to avoid the uncomfortable. To see what might it be to open up into this life more fully to include that which is not easy for us. 
There's a piece I'd like to read from, from Rilke. He writes, We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them, and only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult. Then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. And so when our attention is drawn to that which is not easy for us, to see if we can allow ourselves to receive the experience. Not here to fix it. Not that we have to always engage with it, because sometimes we need to back off. Sometimes we need to say, that's enough, and just maybe take a step back or away. Or turn our attention to something that's more supportive, nourishing or uplifting. And there's a real place for that. But equally sometimes just to see what's possible for us in the place that's not easy. I had a very striking experience when I was traveling in Asia. I think it was probably my first time in India. And um, I had the opportunity, and very fortunate opportunity, to work at a street clinic in Calcutta. And um, I'm quarter Bengali. My grandmother is a Bengali Indian. And uh, it was my first time. I met her for the first time on that visit. I was in my mid-twenties. And I worked at a street clinic that was providing free medical care to the very poor and um, desperate um, desperate people who lived on the streets of Calcutta. And often with all kinds of illnesses that were tragic but eminently treatable and they mostly just didn't have treatment for. And this, there was these Westerners who'd organised this charity called Calcutta Rescue that was uh, offering this clinic. And... Uh, I had no medical skills or training. I was just kind of there sort of helping with practical things. But one of the things that one of the medical people there told me that shocked me completely was about leprosy because there were a number of lepers there and they were um, coming to have their, their injuries and their, you know, to be treated. And I discovered, rather impacted still when I think about it, that leprosy doesn't do what I thought it did, which it doesn't make your skin and your fingers and your lips and your nose fall off. It doesn't do that to you. Leprosy kills the nerve tissue, so you can't feel pain. And then if you're poor and uneducated as these people are, and you cut yourself or you burn yourself, and it gets infected and starts to rot, you don't really notice it because you don't feel anything until it's 
seriously damaged or it's fallen off. And that's how leprosy does what it does to people. And this is the bit that got me. It's like the thing that would make the most difference for these people's lives was if they could feel pain. There would be a protection. And so if we understand both at an emotional level and a physical level, that which is painful and difficult is saying to us something very clearly. And we don't like it generally, but what it's saying is pay attention here. Check this out and see what's needed. Check this out and see what's happening. It's not saying you've got to do something with it. It's not saying you've got to ignore it. It's saying pay attention here. It's really good at it. Have you noticed how pain gets your attention? You know, a little bit of discomfort goes a long way to staying awake. If anyone's struggling with drowsiness, the one thing we don't normally suggest, but it works, is take away the cushion, take away the mat. It's really hard to get drowsy when you're uncomfortable. And it's interesting how we want to get comfortable, and when we get comfortable, we get sleepy. So being comfortable and awake is a challenge sometimes. And as we start to reflect in this way and see that maybe this isn't something to reject, but to use, to learn from, we can start to to see that our capacity to open to it is much greater than we've imagined. When we strip away some of the blaming and the judging and the rejecting of that realm of human experience, we actually come to it with, oh yeah, it's not always easy, but we actually have an immense capacity to receive and to open to our life. When we don't resist it, it begins to move and flow more naturally, revealing its natural fluidity. Life is in motion. It's fluid. It's fluid. And what it means to be a human being is actually something remarkably porous and open when we don't resist what's going on. And life actually can move through us. We're not somehow obliged to leave because there's something difficult here. And that's actually the deepest suffering is when we become somehow alienated from ourselves, when we feel or become disconnected from being right here because that's the only way we think we can or we know how to handle what's not easy for us. And in that, allowing things to move through, we can start to see that there's much more space here. There's much more possibility here than we might have ever imagined or conceived. And this open-hearted abiding that we're exploring, that we're cultivating, that we're developing together, that in this, there's a settling of the heart. There's a way in which we come to rest even in the midst of that which isn't always easy and which we equally open (coughs) to allowing that which is, is beautiful, is lovely, to touch us deeply. When we close down to that which is difficult, we equally become closed down to that which is lovely. And part of what happens here on retreat is we open ourselves as we can be touched and we might feel the tender sensitivity but we may also start to notice that sweeter nourishment that comes. And these two together, allowing them to move through us, we might start to to see something, to know something. 
about the vastness and the openness of life in which our hearts can come to rest, which we share with all beings. And this we could call perhaps the peaceful dimension of life. This is something we can know more fully and deeply, each of us for ourselves. So let's sit together just for a few more moments quietly. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we find the courage in our hearts to turn towards that which we find difficult or scary. And may we deepen in the kindness that can hold tenderly those places we find not easy to bear in our hearts and in our lives. And may we come to abide more and more deeply in the vast openness of the heart at rest. For our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.